I'm your host, David Nage. This is Baselayer, where institutional investors come to learn about crypto. The views, information, or opinions expressed during the Baselayer podcast series are solely those of the individuals involved and do not necessarily represent those of ARCA, where David Nage is a principal. ARCA is not responsible and does not verify for accuracy of any of the information contained in the podcast series available for listening. The primary purpose of this podcast series is to educate and inform. The podcast series does not constitute financial advice or other professional advice or services. Please do your own research. This podcast is presented by Blockworks Group one of the best digital asset event and media production companies that I know of. For exclusive content and events that provide insight into digital assets, visit them at blockworksgroup.io. You won't be disappointed. This is David, and this is your new episode of Base Layer. I have Jesse Proudman, the CEO of Strix Leviathan with me today. Jesse, how are you? Very well. Happy to be here. Great. So Strix Leviathan is a quantitative fund created by a team of seasoned technologists and experienced finance professionals that recognize the opportunity for algorithmic trading within the cryptocurrency markets. And so we're going to talk all about that. And we're going to talk about what they're doing there, how they are differentiating themselves in this new ecosystem that we are all taking a look at. Jesse is a experienced entrepreneur. He has 20 years of experience as a technical entrepreneur prior to Strix Leviathan, founded Blue Box, a cloud computing startup, and raised uh, $22 million in venture capital for Blue Box and sold it to IBM. So we're talking to someone who has experience and someone who is been around the block a few times, and we like that because it shows that people outside of the crypto sandbox, that there are people who have been not just in crypto, but actually have some been in traditional finance and have been building businesses outside of this for years. And so I think that lends to the credibility of the overall ecosystem. So Jesse, tell us what we'd like to do is not necessarily focus on the when Bitcoin moment. And I say that specifically because it seems that most of the people have had this Bitcoin moment, 2011, 2012, somewhere around there. They read the white paper, someone told them about it and they got interested in it and they started to play around with it and they subsequently did things in the space. What we'd like to do is when did you kind of, as a technology entrepreneur, someone who's built businesses before, when did you start to see that there was something special with distributed and decentralized systems, that there was going to be this emergence, that there was going to be a real asset class? When did you kind of see that and what led you to that to that kind of finding? I totally missed the boat on all of this. So Back in 2003, I had started Blue Box as a freshman in, in college, and I actually went to college with Eric Voorhees, who went on to found Shapeshift, and Nick uh-huh. Carey, who went on to found Blockchain.com, and have, have, have known those guys for years. But for the last, really from 03 through 09, was so focused on building Blue Box, and then we raised uh, venture money in 2012, uh, and then we sold the company in 2015. My head was just out of the game in terms of looking at new ideas. So... I missed the original white paper. I, I sort of followed along with what Nick and with what Eric were were building, but never with enough sort of intellectual capacity to to dive in and really understand here until I got to 2017. And in 2017, my role at IBM changed. Uh, I moved from the cloud unit to working with IBM Ventures, focusing on a, an accelerator initiative that they wanted to launch 
And my role in that was going to be focused on blockchain technology. So I got to spend all of 2017 researching the space, which was a, a perfect time to really be, dive in. Uh, so any any and everything I could consume, blogs, podcasts, uh, uh, playing with the actual technology itself, looking at trading charts, uh, building tech, that, that was my year. And as we all can remember, 2017 was such a bonanza in the space and everything mm-hmm. was moving at such such an incredible pace. Um, it really started to remind me of of the internet circa 2000, or excuse me, circa 1997, when I got started in in my last business, uh, and that was just a really exciting moment for me, uh, being able to to sort of see. It really, it reminded me of, uh, it reminded me of the early internet in that we had a set of protocols that were functional, you could use them, and but they were really primitive. Uh, the user experience in in all of these technologies uh, was and continues to be a challenge even for sophisticated users. Uh, and there's a lot of question about what ultimately uh, these technologies become used for. And that was really exciting. It's, it's sort of this greenfield opportunity to get in and, and see something structurally and fundamentally new that's being built from the ground floor. Um, so despite the fact that I was sort of very late to the industry, uh, in, in relative terms, uh, it was nice to have the opportunity to really dive in in a meaningful way. Right. So you're talking about what we now call the protocol wars here in digital assets and how many of them, the primitives, as you alluded to back in the day, you know, versus 1994, 95, 96, it feels that same way. The user experience has not been great. It's getting much better, though. Um, And the idea of interoperability was not really there back then. You know, there were all these disparate pieces and similar today, you know, until recently, we've seen a lot of the lack of interoperability. We've seen people, we've seen founders trying to build on top of these single protocols that are very good at one thing, but when you try to do many other things, that's when things don't really work. And so it's it's super interesting, your kind of the historical prevent, uh, kind of mind that you've had on that as it relates to getting into the space. So when did you become, or when did you want to start Strix Leviathan, what, what was the impetus behind that? Yeah, so in Q4 of, or Q3 of 17, IBM came back and uh, determined there wasn't funding to launch the accelerator that I was on. So I looked for a couple other roles within IBM, uh, considered there was a distinguished engineer role to focus on cryptocurrency, but that would require a relocation to New York. And I'm here in Seattle, very happy here. Uh, so at that point, sort of knew I was on my way out. Took a look at the at the markets, uh, and this was now Q4 of, of 17, as everything is going absolutely bananas. I um, had thought about maybe getting involved with some exchanges, so spoke with Bittrex here in, in Seattle and uh, had some feelers out to, to Coinbase, but nobody had cycles to, to sort of onboard or look at, at new people. And while all of that was going on, I had sort of had this uh, culmination of thought from the research I'd, I'd completed all year. Um, really looking at these markets and beginning to realize there was an opportunity for algorithmic trading. And a lot of that was a function of of just my own sort of learning from my own mistakes. Like I'm not personally a very good trader. Uh, I learned that through 2017. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I learned that ultimately for me, sort of fear, emotion, uh, greed, all of that begins to drive trading decisions, which ultimately were not particularly profitable for me. Um, but you stare at these charts long enough, you look at, at the price action in this, this asset class, and you begin to visually see patterns, or I began to visually see patterns that, that would exist here. 
And I recognized that if I could visually see these patterns, there was absolutely an opportunity to algorithmically see those patterns. And so in Q4, I began to, to prototype a first set of software that pulled down pricing data off exchanges, normalized it, stored it, looked through that data for, for those patterns, and then began to, to trade off of uh, those patterns that I was able to identify. And by the end of the year, I think it was three days after Bitcoin's all-time high in, in December, I had concluded that I had sort of the, the beginnings of an idea here that I thought would work. And I reached out to Sadie Rainey, who worked with me at, at IBM and at Blue Box, and, and said, I've got this crazy idea. Do you want to go, go try to make it work? And so we founded Strixleviathan uh, January 1, left IBM January 1 of, of 18, and, and began our journey with this endeavor. Awesome. So... You highlight your software edge, and you were just alluding to that. So data ingestion and transformation engine, proprietary trading algorithms, robust trade execution engine, and then settlement and back office reporting. So let's talk about each one of those. So data ingestion and transformation engine. So you are pulling trading data from multiple sources, as you just said, including an array of exchanges and brokers. One of the things I wanted to talk about is what we've seen is we've seen some attempts on the ETF side that there have been some providers out there that have tried to do analysis and diagnostics on the exchanges to try to tell the regulators, hey, everything's okay. You can actually you know approve an ETF because there's you know there are good things happening here. There's more oversight. There's more you know internal governance, et cetera, et cetera. How do you actually go through the process of picking that data and those data providers and those exchanges? How do you go through that? Yeah, it's a fascinating question. And a lot has changed over the last two years in, in that regard. So when we started, sort of Binance uh, had just become an, a thing. Bitrix was one of the leading exchanges for, for uh, coins, but didn't have a US dollar uh, offering. Coinbase and, and GDAX obviously were, were leading players. And so a lot of the original technology was figuring out ways to integrate pricing feeds off of sort of the established players in the space. And we immediately hit challenges there in terms of, of API standards. So that's that's one of the biggest issues that, that we've seen in terms of pricing data is that none of these exchanges sort of treat their, their data or provide feeds that are in similar format. And so the first thing we had to go build was, was this uh, layer to translate data coming off of each one of these exchanges into a normalized format that, that we could use and then use that to build our own sort of pricing indexes. Another big challenge here is that because liquidity is distributed amongst really 10, 20, 30, or up to 100 exchanges, depending on how you look at it, uh, being able to derive a true sort of spot price of a particular asset in this class is really tricky. So we had to come up with mechanisms where we could uh, avoid sort of using a single exchange's pricing feed uh, to derive our own true price uh, of an asset. And so that was all the, the original set of technology that we built. Mm-hmm. In terms of in terms of the exchanges that we looked at, really, it, a lot of it for us uh, early on was around who we knew. Uh, there's a lot of, of uh, I, I think there's a lot of opportunity for for trust and relationship development in the space. It's not a very big space, right. and so you can get you can get to know the the founders of these companies. Like we know the Bitrix team here in Seattle very well, and so we've built trust uh, with them as an entity. We know the Coinbase team very well. We've built trust with them as an entity. We know we've met know the Binance team very well. We we built trust with them, and so it's a matter of of who do you trust and who do you respect. And then after now operating for two years, uh, you start to be able to develop some some confidence in 
the data and the liquidity coming off of, of these exchanges. I think that the biggest issue we face here is that many of these uh, many of these exchanges really don't have true liquidity. The volumes purported are, are wash traded. So you need to be able to cut through the noise and, and identify the ones uh, where liquidity is, is valid. And a lot of that for us has been through uh, utilization through experience, through trust and, and uh, analysis. It is so interesting. Whereas this revolution, if you will, is supposed to be on the facet of trustlessness, where you have the ability to lever just dist- uh, distributed and decentralized system of actors that you don't know, but because they have economic incentives in place, because they have put up their computation, because they have basically, you know, put themselves in a position where if they are a bad actor, then they're going to lose a tremendous amount economically. There is this, you know, it's interesting that in the in the day and age where we're trying to move to that, trust is still a factor where we have to have trust with the counterparties that we're working with, especially when it comes to financial institutions and financial uh, vehicles like this. And I think that's interesting. It's just an interesting narrative. There's no place I'm really going with it. It's just an interesting observation that I've seen as well, too, that as we try to remove this kind of trust layer and go to trustlessness, we still need to have trust. And so interesting. Yeah, it's it's it's, it's interesting. So we spoke with a new LP last month uh, and on an introductory call, we, we literally went over for about 15 minutes how centralized exchanges differ from on-chain transactions. Mm-hmm. So I think a lot a lot of people have this belief that the trading that occurs uh, in these in these assets occurs on chain, and it's all sort of visible uh, in the in the blockchain history. And the reality is, the vast majority of trading is happening on centralized exchanges. Mm-hmm. You send you send capital to a pooled uh, to a pooled account, and everything effectively is managed inside of a database by that centralized provider. And it's all sort of hidden from view on chain. And then the only the only transaction that's ultimately seen is the withdrawal or deposit to and from. And that that's confusing for a lot of people. And it goes exactly to your point that we talk about these as decentralized networks, yet the vast majority, the absolute majority of, of trading is happening in these centralized exchanges that do require trust. All right. And we are seeing an evolution. We are seeing the maturation of DEXs of decentralized exchanges. We've had DYDX and a few others on recently on the show. And so there is a maturation of the decentralized exchanges. But to your point, we have to crawl before we walk. We have to walk before we run. And so we have to slowly evolve. We can't expect everything to go to decentralized land tomorrow. And I think that was a problem for people in the last two years and everything you know, everything had to be decentralized and, you know, well, no, you can't do that. You have to actually wait for evolution and, and, up to, and adaptation from people to, you know, catch up. And so I think let's head on to proprietary trading algorithms. You have AI and machine learning to your data sets to develop proprietary algorithmic trading strategies. I am fascinated with the incorporation of machine learning and digital assets. I think that's really interesting. I think we'll see a future, especially in staking networks, where you'll see more of that uh, so they can be there to actually work on those governance structures and things will happen much faster. So how does it work, though, with machine learning? What kind of neural networks can you set up for digital assets? Yeah, it's a great question. So we we started off... Uh, with a sort of very broad perspective, taking a look at the data that we had, and you quickly realize that there's there's not a lot of data data in this asset class. Like this is a 
you think about AI and ML, it's really advantageous when you have truly big data, large data sets, and there's just not enough data points in, in, in many of these assets to be meaningful. So that was the, the first big challenge for us. How do, we, how do we structure algorithms that aren't simply overfitting models to whatever the, the data set that we have is? And it's funny, you know, I, I get those Medium emails every morning uh, that come in with recommendations for the latest blog post about somebody that's used the neural network to identify pricing patterns. And you go read those, and the conclusion in every single one of them is it didn't work once I started live trading it. And that's ultimately the, the challenge in this space because the data is so, so thin, uh, most models really overfit uh, their, their predictions. So um, we, we, took originally an approach that, um, that we picked up from commodities traders mm -hmm. and we adapted uh, sort of commodities trading strategies from the, the 80s and 90s uh, as the initial implementation uh, for the, the algorithms. We've then now supplemented those with additional machine learning capabilities. So we're looking at hidden Markov models to identify different states within the market. So if you think about, uh, you can think about states or, or, or regimes like a high volatility state, sort of a range bound state, low volatility, uh, using those to identify periods of time where our strategies will perform better and periods of time where they will suffer from the way the market is behaving. Uh, and so we're, we're beginning to incorporate those types of strategies into really our allocation mechanisms. So mm -hmm. not trying to predict, not trying to predict price, uh, but being able to, to identify as the market shifts and behaves differently which sets of algorithms that we have will do best in that particular market condition. Another big area that we're, we're looking at, uh, these markets are all incredibly correlated. Mm -hmm. And so being, a, being able to use machine learning to identify uh, effectively the correlation ratios between these, these assets uh, in real time and identify breakouts of, of particular assets as they move outside of the bounds of the historical correlation to, to markets. So again, it's a lot of it's not really the price was this today. What will the price of it be tomorrow? Right. It's uh, identifying opportunities and assets, or or allocating differently into assets based on what the market's doing. And so I think a lot of people have been trying to review correlation of digital assets, Bitcoin, Ethereum, others out there to traditional assets like. WTI. Um, there's been ad nauseum about gold, obviously, because everyone has talked about Bitcoin being the version of digital gold. And so everyone looks at the correlation or the anti-correlation of that. Have you been able to take a look, and I'm not asking for a secret sauce here, but have you been able to see correlations picking up or actually not picking up as it relates to traditional assets and digital assets? Yeah, it's an interesting question. Obviously, we've, we've looked at that data as well, since that's such a uh, it's such a preeminent, preeminent narrative about this space. Uh, I think one of the biggest challenges we face is that uh, the space has not gone through a recessionary period in traditional financial markets to really be able to identify its behavior, uh, how this market will behave as traditional markets uh, go into to a recessionary period. So yeah, we, we've looked at a lot of the, the correlations to traditional assets. They're, they're uh, sort of low correlations. It looks good on paper. We, we feel like it is a wonderful addition to a traditional portfolio. It's a big part of our belief um, and why we're participating in this space. Uh, for us, the, the more interesting thing is looking at correlation of assets within the, the space itself. Mm -hmm. uh, and for a long, long time, you, sort of, you see these different narratives around uh, 
Bitcoin being sort of the only the only asset that really has any value versus what people call alt season, where all of the different alternative assets uh, really change in price much faster than Bitcoin. What we've looked at there is the different patterns over time. And there's definitely uh, there's cycles to this space uh, and the, the correlation uh, of alternative assets to Bitcoin changes over time. So we spend a lot of time looking at, at that pattern. Right. And before we get to your, there's an interesting um, post that you guys made about frontier markets as it relates to digital assets. You also, the last few segments uh, in regards to the fund are kind of more in the back office, the execution. Um, and so I'm curious, as you've been able to build the fund and you've been able to see all the vendors come through, how would you say the the tooling of kind of the back office of funds as it relates to digital assets Many people who are familiar with traditional fund management are used to the administrators and all the other people that make sure the ones and zeros basically match up. How would you say or how would you characterize the back office operations and tooling and digital assets maturing over the last few years? Yeah, that's a good question. I I think because we've ended up building a lot of this stuff where I've got a skewed perspective, but that was the biggest surprise for me getting into the space yeah. in, in, 20, in 2018 there was such limited tooling for a, a fund manager to, to really operate a fund. I was incredibly shocked. We know a bunch of fund managers with, with pretty large size funds for this space who are managing things in Excel or in tools they've sort of hacked together in Python uh, in, internally. It, it's appalling, uh, sort of the, the state or the state in 2018. It's gotten better over the last two years and, and sort of pieces have come in to, to fit that puzzle. Luca has done some good work with their tooling. Many of the TPAs uh, in the space have built uh, either proprietary tooling or partnered with other people, but it's still not where it needs to be. And there's a lot of pieces to it, right? There's the, the pricing piece, there's tracking all of the trading, um, there's executing trades, uh, there's tracking all the LPs and their balances within mm -hmm. the fund. Uh, and all of the solutions out there are sort of, they're, they're piece point. Uh, so you can go get pricing feeds, you can go to Luca and get sort of trade analysis, uh, but you can't buy one solution today that is end-to-end uh, -end complete. Right. And that's ultimately what, what we've ended up having to build. Yeah. Uh, so, uh, and we really think that that's become a big differentiator for us. You, you mentioned we, we came from the world of, of traditional business. Like we, we entered this space really with a focus on how do we do this the right way the first time? How do we build uh, sort of trust for in our LPs and how we do this? Mm -hmm. uh, and so all of that is culminated in the software platform that allows us to track sort of every penny in real time across every trade that we're doing. We're launching now in, in the coming weeks an LP portal. So all of our LPs will be able to log in and view all of their historical data, view data on the fund, newsletters, performance data. Uh, all within a single portal. And, and that's not something that any other fund out there has today uh, that, that we're aware of. Uh, and so for us, it's it's about really instilling that trust into LPs. This is a new asset class. Yep. Uh, and it's, it's concerning and scary to a lot of people. And so we want to be transparent and truthful about everything that we're doing. And the software platform that we've built really allows us to do that effectively. So let's talk about that, it, you know, from an LP perspective, you know, we try to harp on the fact that there are hundreds of millions and billions of people who are not in this crypto sandbox today. And so how do we actually get them to be involved? And touching on your 
blog post here, which I found fascinating. The new frontier pattern parallels between frontier markets and cryptocurrency. And then you speak about over the last 11 years, cryptocurrencies have blossomed from a one horse town into a marketplace with thousands of tradable assets and billions in market capitalization. Despite the exponential growth in just a decade, cryptocurrency remains a fringe asset class suffering from poor liquidity and a clear lack of regulatory oversight. So let's talk about that. Um, you guys highlighted regulatory, bad actors, sporadic liquidity, and low signal to noise. Can you touch on some of those and just kind of give people an overview of the way that you are thinking about how digital assets are maturing over the last few years as it relates to those uh, components? Absolutely. So I'll, I'll start with liquidity because I think that's the biggest one for people entering this space. So most people come from the world where if you want to go buy Tesla or you want to go buy Apple, there's not a liquidity problem. You can go buy as little or as much as, as you'd like and your execution costs are relatively limited. That is not the case at all in this space. And when we started in 2018, uh, we, we began trading on exchange as our first mechanism of trading as we were testing out strategies. Um, and execution costs on exchange, even for balances as low as sort of $25,000 worth of, of capital, you're talking sort of hundreds uh, to thousands of basis points of execution costs. So when you're trying to identify moves of six to ten percent, but you're paying, you know, three hundred to a thousand basis points in execution, like it just invalidates any any strategy you've developed in terms of actual real world effectiveness. Uh, Bitcoin is is obviously much better since it's the leading horse. But even when we started, and um, we moved most of our trading off exchange and, and started participating with the OTC desks that allow for block trading, uh, and execution costs there when we started were in the sort of forty to eighty basis point range. That's come down dramatically over the last two years um, to now where for, for Bitcoin, uh, for the, the type of trading that we're doing, we're paying execution costs that are they're almost at spot or maybe five to 10 basis points. Uh, but that's Bitcoin. As you start to move down uh, the market cap list um, in the top 10, you've still got meaningful liquidity. You can sort of execute for, for 20 to 80 basis points at a time. Uh, but outside of that top 10, things get really crazy again. And so I, I think a lot of fund managers will go and look at this space and, and make uh, assertions around returns on smaller cap coins. Uh, and, and that works if you're willing to hold those coins for long periods of time and you've got the ability to, to time weight average price in and, and time weight average price out. Uh, but a lot of people don't have that luxury. And those returns really uh, ultimately become sort of paper returns. Like you can't actually obtain those moving capital in and out. And so that's a it's a big fallacy about the space. We we see people sort of promoting all of these these small cap coins as a way to generate outsized returns. When in reality, any any true fund can't move their capital in and out uh, to to do that. Right. So that that's sort of that's the first problem. Um, regulatory oversight is another big issue in this space. There's just um, the the regulators, and, and we very much support a regulated market here. Again, we we tried from day one to do everything. Uh, correctly, we spent a significant sum of capital on legal uh, to do everything correctly. You know, a, a traditional fund or a venture fund origination costs. Uh, we we've spent sort of four x what it should have cost to set this thing up, um, and that's largely due to the fact that uh, we're sort of writing, we're writing the <laughs> rules as we, or we're we're trying to identify the rules as as we're flying. Um, this space just needs more more clarity. Uh, we need regulators who are willing to say. Uh, this is how 
this is how we view the space. And, uh, and as a function of that, it, it removes sort of that uncertainty that makes everybody spend significantly more on, on legal than they need to. Um, and we're getting there, right? The SEC, I think, has done a tremendous job over the last two years, uh, beginning to, to sort of build positions and thoughts on, on what is a very complicated space. Um, but in the US, for example, then we've got each, each state has its own perspective. Um, and we're from Washington, so we have the Washington State DFI, which has taken a pretty aggressive stance on, on this asset class. So at, at the end of the day, it just, it, it's painful. It's painful mm-hmm. to operate in. Uh, and it's, this was, if anything was the biggest surprise for me in starting this business, it, it was this component. Like I thought we would have many other challenges. I did not expect uh, sort of the, the regulatory piece to be the, the most time consuming and, uh, and frustrating. Uh, but it is, it is what it is. Uh, and it will only improve with, with time. That's right. And so I'm also curious, and this is probably an 800 pound atomic bomb. And I'm not saying that I'm kidding. I don't do that to people, but I saw that you also talked about the happening a few months back and lots of people are keyed up about that. Anything that you want to share in terms of opinions going into the happening as it relates to Bitcoin, obviously not investment advice. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we, we think that this space, oftentimes people will create narratives to fit sort of historical price action. Uh, and we approach everything so differently from a traditional fundamental fund manager. Uh, so the, the having piece for us, uh, I mean, the narrative there is that in May, the, the Bitcoin having occurs, the supply that is uh, emitted from each block that's mined is reduced in half. And mm-hmm. the reduction of supply, uh, in the theory says, will push price up because sell-side pressure is reduced. Um, the, the research that we did showed that much of the price actioning happens ahead of the halving, um, and that uh, markets sort of behave or behave or perform worse following the halving, but that there's no sort of statistical significance across a multitude of assets that, that halvings create uh, sort of unique economic conditions. That said, there are tons of people in the space that believe the opposite, and that power of the narrative here is, is really important because the liquidity is sparse and, and so many people sort of follow along with, with what the stories are, what the narrative is, uh, that can be sort of self-reinforcing. Uh, so it's really, it's going to be an interesting way to play out, or it'll be interesting to watch it play out over the next couple of months here. At the end of the day, it was really important to us to be prepared to be able to play both sides of the market. So if, if the having does drive price uh, in the way that many of the models or, or the fundamental fund managers are predicting, um, we're well prepared in that sense. And and if it uh, plays out how it has historically based on the analysis that we've done, we're also well equipped to handle that scenario. And that's that's been sort of our, our uh, founding principle from, from day one. How do we make sure that, that we're not just following the news? I agree. The contrarian always typically does well. And so second level thinking, if everyone's jumping into the pool, maybe I shouldn't do that as well too. Time will tell. We'll see what happens with the happening. You know, there are obviously different stories and different camps. And so we will see shortly how the market reacts as we are recording this right now. Bitcoin is still doing quite nicely this week. And so if you are listening and you're a family officer or an institutional investor and you haven't created your digital asset strategy yet, I'm going to ask you why. So talk to us and let us know. Um, the last things that we like to do with people on the show is get a little bit into their mind and it's not an MRI or anything like that. It's basically, there are two things that we hopefully get to enjoy aside from the building of the businesses that we are doing today. Reading, 
Anything that you have read recently, it could be an article, it could be a newspaper, it could be a book. Hopefully it has some time to read books if you do. Um, and it can be, you know, crypto related or non-crypto related. Um, and then any music that you listen to. And I find that that's an interesting uh, tell about a person's personality, if it's classical, if it's rock, if it's whatever it may be. So everyone seems to be on a reggaeton tick late, uh, lately too. I'm, I'm, I'm baffled by that. Um, so anything that you've read recently and any music that you like? Yeah, absolutely. So I just got back from vacation. So the, the reading piece is a good one for me right now. So I, I try to avoid crypto reading when I have my, my free time, since that's what I do all day long. So the, the two books I've been enjoying lately, uh, the first is Rachel Maddow's Drawdown, or excuse me, Blowout. Rachel Maddow's Blowout, which is mm -hmm. a, a story about the oil markets uh, over the last 20, 30 years uh, and their relation to international politics. It's been a fascinating read. Um, and the second book I've been reading is uh, called Drawdown, which is a uh, a uh, story about, or effectively a, a narrative around the hundred uh, practical ways that we can solve climate change. Uh, so real world solutions that have been researched and numerically proven that would have a, an actual impact. And both of those have been pretty fascinating. On the music side, you know, I'm, I'm a multi-genre guy. Uh, I love electronic music. So drum and bass is a, a big uh, genre for me. Nice. But I'll go yeah, I'll go all the way over to, to classical music at certain times. You know, these these markets can be frenetic. So <laughs> sometimes, sometimes when they're going nuts, it's nice to have a little uh, a little classical in the background to, to calm the body down. So in terms of D and B, someone like a Goldie, for instance, back, back in my day, and I say that almost like a like I'm in a Western movie back in my day, what would that be? Because, you know, I was never into D&B. I'm a big EDM fan. As anyone who's listened to the show knows, I used to be a DJ back in the day as well. But uh, anyone in particular? Yeah. Uh, so Ram Records is one of my favorite labels. Oh, yeah. uh, so there's a, a whole bunch of artists there that I'm a big fan of. Yep. Wow, you are, you are legit. Wow. Yeah, I mean, it's a... Way back in the day, I used to do video projection uh, at electronic music shows. No way! That's yeah. so cool. So that's, that was my that was my high school job. So <laughs> um, I got to perform for like Paul Van Dyke and Diesel Boy and wow, you know, all, all kinds of folks. I love asking this question. It's fun, it's so fun to find out about people's past and music. That's great. It's a totally different world. Yes, it was. Um, so the last thing that we like to do on the show, where can people find out more about you? You guys have a great website if you want to point them to there and how can they get in touch with you guys? Yeah, absolutely. So our website is Strix Leviathan, S-T-R-I-X-L-E-V-I-T-H-A-N.com. You can find me on Twitter at Jesse Proudman, exactly how my name is spelled. And uh, we, we'd love to chat. We, we've been proud to be sort of sources of information for many of the local family offices in, in town. And, and we're always happy to answer questions. Awesome. This was Jesse Proudman at Strix Leviathan, a special quantitative fun out there. Definitely check him out. Um, and we'll be talking with Jesse in a few months to see how the things are going in the markets and how things are going there. Thanks for coming on, Jesse. Thank you very much. Thanks for listening in to Baselayer. If you like the show and all the different guests that we've brought on, please give a like and subscribe on Apple or Spotify or wherever you do listen to the podcast. Also, if you want to have a conversation or reach out to me, you can reach me out on Twitter at David J. Nage. And let's talk there. Or also you can find me on LinkedIn. 
and I look forward to having great conversations with you all about digital assets.